Would you take out your Bible if you have one? If you don't have one, you can raise your hand and one of the ushers will bring you one. We are in the Old Testament. First thir- two-thirds of the Bible is the Old Testament. We're in the book of Judges, which is the sixth book. You'll open to the first book, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and Judges. I'm sorry, the seventh book. Judges is where we are at, where we will be for most of this year. I wonder if you've ever found yourself in a situation personally or just looking around at the lives of people you know or the culture in which you live, asking yourself the question, how did I get to this place? How did things get so bad? And many times when we come to that place where we find ourselves asking, how did things get so bad? The follow-on question from that is, is there any hope that things could get any better? Having now served as a pastor for 25 years, there have been many times where after a service that I've taught or sometime throughout the week, someone will come and meet with me and say, hey, can I talk with you for a few minutes? I'm going through some things. I was hoping to get your counsel. And many times in those situations, people have brought that question. How did things get so bad? Is there any hope that things could get any better? Sometimes it is the parents who come in and they have a teenager who is just completely out of control and they wonder how did things get so bad or other times it's been a couple that comes in because their marriage is falling apart or maybe it's a young man who comes and there's an addiction in their life, his life that is destroying his life or it is the family that is being strangled by just a ton of debt. Other times it's the the husband who through a series of bad decisions for his family, now has a place where it feels like, well, they're trapped and there's resentment and there's anger between the husband and the wife. And they come in and they ask the question, how did things get so bad? Is there any hope that things could be any better? It's at that point when you have those conversations that sometimes there's a little bit of extra investigation that needs to be done, a little bit of deconstruction to try and figure out how did you get to this point because it didn't happen overnight. It's not like you woke up all of a sudden and everything was just this wildfire that was raging. There are a number of different things along the way that brought you to that point. There is a backstory to every situation like that. And sadly, when you start to do the investigation and ask the questions about how did you get to this point? What turns did you make to find yourself here? A lot of times the answer to those questions are are hard to wrestle with because they are decisions that you made along the way to get to the point that you are at. The children of Israel find themselves in a wildfire of a situation in the book of Judges quite a few times. We have returned to the verse frequently and we will quite a bit over the next several months as we go through the book of Judges because it is basically the framing for this book. Judges chapter 2 verse 11, then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and they served the Baals. Now that word Baal, it means master. It was the name ascribed to a Canaanite God that the people in that region of the world at that time worshiped and bowed down to. They served this idol and the idol was, you know, called Baal, but in different regions, it had different ways that they would worship it. But for the most part, this was the thing that people were devoted to in that area that the children of Israel came into to take over the land of Canaan. And the children of Israel were to be a people set apart unto their God. They were to be his people in that land, serving him faithfully, and they would reap the benefits, the blessings of serving him if they would. But The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they found themselves bowing down to the idols that the people around them began to worship. And when you get to that, you kind of have to back up and figure out how did they get to this point? How did this wildfire end up raging? Especially when you realize that it 
it wasn't even really a century before this time that the children of Israel under the leadership of Moses stood before Mount Sinai in the wilderness and Moses came down from the mountain with the tablets of the law, what we call the Ten Commandments. And, and what do the Ten Commandments say? How do they open? Well, in Exodus chapter 20, it's very, very clear. It says, God speaking to his people says, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. That's rule number one. You're to have no other gods, no idols that you're going to bow down to. Rule number two, you shall not make for yourself any carved image of any likeness that is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them for I am the Lord your God. I am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. How do you get from those opening words of the commandments, you shall have no other God before me. You shall not make for yourself any carved image and bow down to them. How do you get from that in Exodus chapter 20 to just a few weeks later, a few chapters later in Exodus chapter 24, where the children of Israel make this pledge to God, all that you have said, we will do and be obedient. You shall have no other gods. You shall not make any carved images. You shall not bow down to them. We will do everything that you've commanded us. And then within a century later, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and they bowed down to idols. What happened to get to that point? How did things get so bad? These are the people of God. That's what they're referred to in the pages of scripture. The descendants of the great father Abraham, the chosen people of God who are entered into a covenant with God and they are the beloved people of God and they did evil in the sight of the Lord and they bowed down to idols. How did it get so bad? Well, it didn't happen overnight. As I said in my message last week, one of my points, the fourth point last week was that the long path to destruction and exile begins with minor degrees of compromise. And it was small steps of compromise that led them to this position. It was a multi-stage process, if you will. And we considered last week in Judges chapter one, what that multi-stage process basically looked like. It started with the children of Israel not driving out all of the people that occupied the land that was promised to them, their father Abraham, this land that was to be the promised land of God for the children of Israel, they were to drive out the inhabitants, the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hittites and all these different ites. They were to drive them out of the land. But Judges chapter one tells us that they did not completely drive out the inhabitants of the land. And from there, after they had not driven out the inhabitants of the land, they began to dwell among them and those people dwelt among them. And as they intermingled and dwelt among those people, the text of Judges chapter one tells us that they began to enter into business relationships with them. They put them under tribute. They caused them to pay a tax. So there's a business relationship going on. They didn't drive them out. They entered into business arranged contracts with them. And then after that, they started to enter into certain agreements with them about the territory, about the land. And then after that, they began to enter into marriages with those people, which is exactly what God told them not to do. Why? Because he said, if you enter into these arrangements, these agreements, these relationships, these marriages, then they will turn you to serve their gods. And that's exactly what happened. My fifth point last week was that any sin that is allowed to remain will inevitably become a snare. It will trip us up, not only the children of Israel, but us as well. If allowed to remain, it will become a snare. The children of Israel drifted. And it's really easy to drift, isn't it? We live 
In San Diego, we live just minutes from the beach. I'm sure you've experienced it before. You enter the water in front of lifeguard tower number 10, and a few hours later, you're in front of lifeguard tower number 16. It's easy to drift. You don't have to do anything to drift. You just drift. And that's what happened with the children of Israel. They drifted away from the Lord. It is a challenge in our lives just as it was for them 3,400 years ago. Point number one, if you're taking notes, your sermon guide is in your bulletin this morning. If we're not moving forward, we will be falling back. Before his death... Joshua, the leader of Israel, as they came into the promised land, he cautioned them that this would take place. If you're not moving forward, you will be falling back. And the text that's in front of us, we're in Judges chapter 2 today, it has a callback to Joshua's final exhortation to the children of Israel. The book of Judges begins after the death of Joshua in very much the same way that the book of Joshua began after the death of Moses. So it's carrying on that same kind of theme of writing. So this book is after the death of Joshua, but Joshua chapter, or Judges chapter 2 says, when Joshua had dismissed the people, in verse 6, when he had dismissed the people, the children of Israel went each to their own inheritance to possess the land. That is actually a callback to the previous book, the last chapter of Joshua. So just turn a couple pages to the left to Joshua chapter 24, because in Joshua chapter 24, we have this exhortation that this great leader Joshua gives to the children of Israel as he's cautioning them about the danger of drifting. Joshua chapter 24, verse 1, we're told there that Joshua gathered all of the leaders of Israel to himself. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel at Shechem and called for the elders of Israel, their heads, for their judges, for their officers, and they presented themselves before God. This is his final message, his final exhortation. Just like the book of Deuteronomy was Moses' final exhortation to the children of Israel before they came into the promised land, Joshua chapter 24 is his final exhortation to the children of Israel just before he is going to die. And he reminds them of their history. He goes all the way back to Abraham and even to Abraham's father to set the stage. Because a lot of times when you're in that situation where you're wondering, how did things get so bad? You got to go back and piece everything together to figure out how we got here in the first place. So in Joshua chapter 24, verse 2, Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord God of Israel, your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham. This is going back 600 years in history from the time that Joshua and the children of Israel were living. He says, I want to remind you about how you ended up in the promised land. Your father and his father, Terah, the father of Abraham, the father of Nahar, dwelt on the other side of the river. They existed in the place that we know of today as Iraq. Then it was Mesopotamia or Babylon there between the, the Euphrates and Tigris and a place called Ur. That is where Abraham was from. It's where he grew up from. And when he lived there on the other side of the river in Ur, notice what it says at the end of verse two, they served other gods. He begins by reminding the children of Israel, hey, listen, your great, 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 great grandfather, Abraham, father Abraham had many sons. That one he was an idolater. He worshiped false gods until God called him to be set apart. And God promised him that if you will follow me and you will follow me by faith faithfully, I will give you this land to you and your descendants. So he served other gods, but then I took your father, Abraham, verse 13, or verse three, from the other side of the river and led him throughout all the land of Canaan and I multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. 
to answer the question, how did things get so bad, sometimes you have to go all the way back to the beginning to try and figure out what were the steps that were taken to get to this point. And that's what Joshua does in Joshua chapter 24. And why did he do that? Why is he telling them this story going on back 600 years in history? Well, to remind them of all that God had done for them of the way that God had called them and set them apart and chosen them and redeemed them and rescued them. He wants them to remember what God had done for them to bring them to this place now as they are in the promised land. He goes on down in verse 13, skip down to Joshua chapter 24, verse 13. He says, I have given you a land for which you did not labor, God says, and cities which you did not build, and you dwell in them, and you eat of the vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant. Now, therefore... Because of all the blessing that I've given to you, because of all the ways that I've provided for you, now, therefore, fear the Lord. Serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods of your fathers, which your fathers served on the other side of the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. God had brought these people out of bondage when they were slaves in Egypt he brought them through the Red Sea. He brought them to Mount Sinai. He gave them his law and entered into a covenant and a relationship with them. He gave them the commandments. They said and pledged all that you have said we will do and be obedient. He led them through the wilderness. He brought them into the promised land. He planted them there in the promised land. And even a very short time after they finally come into the promised land, they are already beginning to enter into idolatry. Joshua, as he was still alive, says, hey, you need to put away the gods that your fathers served. They are already being tempted to go back into idolatry. Why? Because the inclination toward idolatry was very strong within Israel. And we're going to see that in the book of Judges, and we're going to see that as we continue through the historical books of the Old Testament. When you get into Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, the children of Israel are constantly sliding back into idolatry. The inclination towards idolatry was strong for Israel, and it isn't only Israel. The tendency, the proclivity towards sin in us is far greater than sometimes we are willing to honestly acknowledge. It is so great that if we are not moving forward, we will be falling back. It is what Christians have referred to for a long time as backsliding. Drifting, backsliding, that, that's what happens. If we're not pressing forward, moving forward, following after the Lord, following hard after him, him pardon me, then we will be sliding back. I had a great illustration of this about a year ago. I was with some friends over in the Middle East and we went to Saudi Arabia. We were in Jordan for a little bit of time. And when we were in Jordan, we went to this place called Wadi Rum, which is a, this red desert out in the middle of Jordan, the great kingdom of Jordan. It's where movies like the most recent movie Dune has been, was filmed. And the movie The Martian with Matt Damon was filmed there. And some of the Star Wars movies were filmed there in this place called Wadi Rum. So we were there at this place and we took a half a day tour in the back of a truck through Wadi Rum. My friend David Guzik, my friend Lance Ralston, my friend Chuck Musselwhite were bouncing around in the back of a truck. And at one of the stops we came to out in the middle of this desert was this hillside, this pretty steep, you know, 45, 50 degree incline hillside. And there was just a whole bunch of, you know, American tourists climbing up the side of this hillside for no real reason. Like I couldn't figure out what it was, but it was like, everybody's going up this hill. We might as well try it as well. But here was the problem with this hill. It wasn't the incline so much as that the hillside was this powder fine red sand. 
that was about 10 to 18 inches deep. And it was like nearly impossible to climb up the side of this hill. And here's the crazy thing. If you stopped climbing, you would immediately start falling. And there were more than a few people that I watched kind of do some tumbling back down the hill. Now, it was like really padded because it's just, you know, 10, 12 inches of just powdery sand. So no big deal. But if you were not moving forward, you were immediately falling back. And there was no way to just maintain a footing unless you were moving forward. Again, I don't know why we climbed it, but we did. And it gave me a great illustration a year later. So I guess maybe that was the whole point of it. (laughs) It is so important for us to recognize that the temptation towards sinful disobedience is great. It is strong. It was strong for the children of Israel 3,400 years ago, and it is strong for us. And, And here's the bigger challenge. Not only is the temptation towards sinful disobedience strong, our flesh is weak. Point number two, if you're taking notes, the fastest way to fall back is to be arrogant and ignorant of the fact that you're weak. This is why we're told in the New Testament, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. You see, many times we are arrogant thinking that we stand and ignorant of just how weak we actually are. And so we need to remember those words of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. Maybe commit them to memory. It's not very hard to memorize that. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And, and we memorize or remember scripture for the purpose of thinking on it, meditating on it. And remembering it. And if we meditate on those words, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall, we will be entering into an important thing for the Christians, something called humility. It would not be a bad thing in 2024 to commit those words to memory and meditate on them so that you might apply yourself to be humble. Here's the reality. It is better to enter into a situation humble than to be humbled. And and all of us have been humiliated. And many times we've been humiliated when we thought we were stronger than we were. The fastest way to fall back is to be arrogant and ignorant of the fact that we are weak. In addition to those wise words from the Apostle Paul, I think of the wise words from Solomon in Proverbs 16, verse 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Better to be humble of spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil of the proud. I think it would be a wise thing in 2024 for us to think on those words and to apply ourselves toward humility. The prophet Micah, he said, he has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justly, that is to do what is right, to love mercy and to walk humbly before God, to walk in humility. Those three things would keep us from a lot of problems. To seek, to endeavor, to do what is right, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk in humility. Now, one of the problems is is that a lot of times we love mercy for ourselves and we love justice for other people. Right? I mean, you're driving down the freeway and you see someone go flying by you at 90 miles an hour and they cut you off and almost cause an accident. What's the first thing that goes through your mind? Well, I'm assuming probably the same thing that goes through my mind. Where is the highway patrol? I wish you were here right now. I wish I could get that guy right now. I want justice until it's you doing 90. And let's be honest, 
and you cut somebody off, and you didn't, you never meant to do it. It was an accident. I'm sorry. And we do, mercy, please. I would take mercy, please. We love mercy. And we love justice for the other guy. But the scriptures say, he has shown you, O man, what is good, what the Lord requires of you. But to do what is right, do justly, endeavor to do that, and to love mercy and to walk in humility before God. To have an honest assessment of the reality that you are far weaker than you realize is an important thing to do. Joshua, knowing the weakness of his people, he says this, Joshua chapter 24, verse 20. Note the first word, if. You might want to highlight, underline, circle that in your Bible. If you forsake the Lord, Joshua said to the children of Israel before his death, if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then, circle, highlight, underword that word, underline that word, then he, God, will turn and do you harm to consume you after he has done you good. It's wise to see in the scriptures that blessings are with God in his presence. And if you depart from his presence, there is no blessing. The blessings are the overflow of his presence. And so he says, if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done you good. And the people of Joshua, or the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. There they go. They pledged themselves to the Lord. So Joshua said to the people, verse 22, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord for yourselves to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. Now, therefore, verse 23, he said, put away the foreign gods, which are among you. Already they had been seduced back towards idolatry and incline your heart to the Lord, your God, the Lord God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord, our God, we will serve his voice. We will obey. This is that famous passage in which we find that famous verse that actually is on a little thing right outside the door of my house, my front door. Maybe you've seen it at another house, or maybe you even have it in your house. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's this passage, Joshua chapter 24. Joshua said to his countrymen who were already being seduced into idolatry, he says, choose this day who you will serve. Whether it be the gods of the Canaanites or the one true God, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Beautiful verse. And the people said, we will serve the Lord. Well, how did that work out? We've already considered the outcome, but I think it's worth reading again because it frames our entire study that we're going to have here in the book of Judges. Go back to Judges chapter 2 and recognize that at verse 6, it says Joshua is still alive. He just gives this exhortation, this caution to the children of Israel. And then immediately after that, verse 7, we read this. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works which the Lord had done for Israel. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old, and they buried him within the border of his inheritance in timnath Harris, and the mountains of Ephraim on the north side of Mount Gash. And when all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. And then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them and they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and they served Baal and Asherah. How did things get so bad? One small compromise after another. Point number three, if you're taking notes, small steps of compromise lead to devastation and destruction.
Judges chapter 2, verse 14, and the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, so he delivered them into the hands of the plunderers who despoiled them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity, and the Lord said, as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed. We find here what I referred to last week as the passive judgment of God. When we, we open the scriptures and we, we hear or read about God's judgment, his wrath, his punishment, it, it really falls into one of two categories. There is the active judgment of God, which is seen less frequently in the Bible, but it is there in places like Genesis chapter 6, the flood that came upon humanity. That was the active judgment of God. Or in Genesis chapter 19, when God destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, that was the active judgment of God. Or in Exodus chapter 4 verse uh, through chapter 14, when God brought plagues upon the people of Egypt, that was the active judgment of God. But here we have, and what we'll see throughout the book of Judges, is the passive judgment of God. It's where God no longer intervenes to protect and take care of his people, but he allows them to reap the consequences of their own sinful actions that they have sown. It is a principle in the Old Testament, it is a principle in the New Testament, it is a principle that we can see observed in the lives of people around us or in our own lives as well. It is sometimes referred to as the law of sowing and reaping when Paul talks about it in Galatians chapter 6 verse 7 and he says, do not be deceived, God is not mocked, whatsoever a man sows that he will also reap. It is what I've referred to as the Deuteronomic principle that is identified in the book of Deuteronomy, specifically chapter 28, where there are blessings in obedience and there are curses in disobedience, where we read in Deuteronomy 28, verse 15, it shall come to pass if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today, that all these curses will come upon and overtake you. If Obedience, then blessing. If disobedience, then cursing. So, so we find ourselves in the midst of the wildfire. How did things get so bad? Well, for the children of Israel, it was the just punishment for their idolatry. It was the expected outcome of their rebellion. And because it was the expected outcome, it was avoidable. So many of the hurts and pains that we go through are, at their core, avoidable. We look back and we go... Yeah, maybe I shouldn't have done that, said that, gone there, looked at that, whatever it may be. So the person finds themselves in that distressing place like Israel will so many times in the book of Judges and they, they cry out, how did things get so bad? And then they wonder after that, is there any hope that things could get any better? Well, look at Judges chapter 2, verse 16. I don't know what the first verse or first word of verse 16 is in your Bible, but here in my Bible, the New King James Version, it says, nevertheless. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered the children of Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. That word, nevertheless, if that's in your Bible, that might be a word worth underlining or highlighting. Why? It reminds us that God is gracious. I love the grace of God. Can I get an amen? Amen. amen. Good. I love the grace and mercy of God. The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They bowed down to and served other false gods. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges to deliver them. I've referred back to it many times before because I love the passage of scripture in Exodus chapter 34. Moses 
He prays to God that he might see God's glory. And God says, well, I can't show you the fullness of my glory because you wouldn't be able to survive. But I'm going to show you something of my presence. And so Moses is on Mount Sinai in Exodus 34, and he sees something. We're not entirely sure what it is that he saw, but whatever he saw of God's glory, it actually changed his physical appearance for a time. It's like he got a glory sunburn from being in the presence of God. There's no SPF for that. But in addition to what he saw is what God said to Moses when he revealed something of himself to him there. Because he reveals his name, but more than his name, he reveals something of his nature as God appeared in the presence of Moses in Exodus 34, verse 6. He declares his name, the Lord, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim in the Hebrew. The Lord, the Lord God, and then he begins to describe what he's like. And the first word he chooses to use is the word mercy. If you ever take a theology class, one of the things that you'll do in a theology class as you're studying God as he's revealed in the Bible is you will go through the text of scripture to see what are some of the attributes that God gives us of his nature, of his character in the Bible. And sometimes you'll even write out a list of those for a homework assignment in a theology class. And you'll go and you'll find things about God being holy and you'll find things about God being just. And you'll find like first John chapter four that says God is love. And you can list out all these attributes that God has revealed about himself. And then there is the question, are any of these higher, if you will, on the list that have a greater superiority, if you will, like a, in the hierarchy of God's attributes, is there something at the top of the stack? And you'll ask some people to say, well, certainly it's got to be God's holiness. It's got to be God's justice because God is holy and God is just and God is love. All those things are true. But I want to suggest to you that God answers the question for us there in Exodus 34 verse 6. And the way he does is important. Because if God had introduced himself to Moses at that point as the Lord, the Lord God, holy, well, then he might as well just totally destroy the people who were in the valley down below Mount Sinai because they had just made for themselves a golden calf and they were having a naked orgy little fest around that thing. And so if God comes and says, I'm the Lord, the Lord God, holy and righteous and just, all true, there's no reason not to just smite those people. But he comes and says, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful. But that's not all. He goes on, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious patient and abounding in goodness and truth. And I am so grateful that he starts with his mercy, his grace, his long suffering, and his abundance of goodness and truth. Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, by no means clearing the guilty. He does say, I will not overlook sin. But he leads with mercy. And the fact that he leads with mercy makes it possible that you and I could be saved. He is merciful. He does not clear the guilty. He will not overlook iniquity, but he leads with his mercy, his grace, his patience, his goodness, and his truth. The prophet Jeremiah, many hundreds of years later, would observe in one of the saddest books of scripture, it's the book of Lamentations. Not a good book to read if you're having a bad week, but Lamentations chapter three, Verse 22 says, through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed. In fact, 
I, we didn't plan it this way, but the last song that Anthony and the worship team sang right before I came up here was based on these words in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions do not fail. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. I am so thankful that the compassion and mercy of God does not fail. Because listen, I fail a lot. I would encourage you to ask my wife, but I don't want you to. <laughs> I fail constantly. And I am so grateful that God's compassions do not fail. As we make our way through the chapters of the book of Judges, we're going to see that Israel is, uh, well, they move from one dumpster fire to another. And they, they don't always respond to God's compassion and his mercy through raising up these judges in quite the best way. But Yet God remains compassionate and merciful. Judges chapter 2, verse 17, it says, Yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods, and they bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all of the days of the life of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity. Notice this. The Lord was moved to pity. That word pity is connected to his compassion. He was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. Point number four. In spite of our failures and unfaithfulness, God remains merciful and gracious. I think there's probably some here this morning that really need to hear that. You might, at this moment, be in a place where you are reaping the consequences of your own dumb decisions. John, don't make the laugh so noticeable next time. <laughs> or you know some people. Maybe you're praying for a family member or a friend right now who is reaping the consequences of their own dumb decisions. And they're in that place of wondering, how did things get so bad? And is there any hope that things could be any better? I want to remind you, in spite of our failures and our unfaithfulness, God remains merciful and gracious. And, and here's the challenge. Our tendency when we see someone fail is to think that our response ought to be a harsh Call to repentance. How dare you do that thing? I can't believe you would do such a dumb thing. Our inclination for some reason is to just say, oh, you're such a wicked, vile sinner. You need to repent. And we forget that it is God's kindness that leads to repentance. It's God's kindness that probably led some of you to turn to him. In spite of our failures and unfaithfulness, which our failures are many, God remains merciful and gracious. There's a beautiful verse in Isaiah chapter 30 where the prophet Isaiah is speaking to the children of Israel who are in a state of sinful rebellion and idolatry at that time as well in Isaiah chapter 30. And he says, the Lord waits that he may be gracious to you. What on earth is he waiting for? He's waiting for them to turn and return to him in repentance. It is the same picture that we're given in Jesus' story in the Gospel of Luke of the prodigal son. The father of the prodigal son waited every single day that his son would return from his sin. He waited there with arms open wide, if you will, waiting to be gracious. Isn't that a beautiful picture? The Lord God waits to be gracious to you, that you might turn to him. Again, Romans chapter 2, verse 4 says, Do you despise the riches of his kindness and his patience? not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. 
He waits to be gracious. Now, unfortunately, what we're going to see with the children of Israel in the book of Judges is this constant cycle of Israel backsliding into idolatry and reaping the consequences of their sinful rebellion. They, they end up oppressed by their enemies. They, in that place of being oppressed by their enemies, they cry out to God who is compassionate and he's moved to pity at the groaning of his people. And so God in his grace and his mercy, he has compassion on them and he sends them a judge to deliver them, to rescue them. And they return to the Lord. They come back to him in repentance, in faith, until that judge dies. And then what? Judges chapter 2, verse 19. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers. That's what we're going to see in this book, and it's actually pretty sad. Because some of the stories in this book are so disturbing that there's even a temptation for me to not talk about them on a Sunday morning. You think, really? Could it get that bad? Let me tell you, it can get that bad. They, they acted more corruptly than their fathers. By following other gods to serve them, to bow down to them, they did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. It's just, like I said, one sad dumpster fire after another, but it's also a sobering reminder of the danger and the treachery of sin. Sin will destroy your life. This is why it's so bad. It's not just bad because God says, thou shalt not. It's bad. God says, thou shalt not, because it will kill you. If it's allowed to remain, it will become a snare. Verse 20, Judges chapter 2, Then the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he said, Because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers and has not heeded my voice, I also will no longer drive out from before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, so that through those nations I may test Israel, whether they will keep the ways of the Lord to walk in them as their fathers kept them or not. Therefore the Lord left those nations without driving them out immediately, nor did he deliver them from the hand of Joshua. Of Joshua. Judges is a heavy book. And you could ask the question, like, why, why go through such a book? Well, all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written down for our instruction. It is so much better to learn from the mistakes of others than to have to go through them ourselves. Amen. And listen, we are living in a time not so different than the time in which some of these judges lived. A time in which people do what is right in their own eyes, and they have no recognition of God or his word or his law. We're living in a time where we desperately need the delivering power and grace of God. It was through the judges that God would rescue and redeem and restore his people. It is in and through these individuals who we will meet by name next week, begin to meet next week, that we are reminded, point number five, God is compassionate to those who repent and return to him. I've had a number of conversations over the years of people who started to attend our church and they came here not yet believers but became Christians. It's a wonderful thing as a pastor to watch that transition. But I've had these conversations with people where they tell me, you know, the first time I came to church, I was really afraid to come here. I thought I might just like have a heart attack on the spot because God would just kill me. They, they came here and left before coming in because they were afraid that they would be exposed for how sinful and wicked they are and they might just die on the spot. They had no idea, what might God do to me if he's actually real? Well, if he's actually real, he's compassionate and he is gracious to those who repent and return to him. But when we look at the stories that we're going to see in Judges, 
it can weigh upon us and we can begin to think, how can we have any hope to not fall into the same sinful cycle that the children of Israel fell into? To find ourselves in the same position where we need someone to come and rescue us, I want to encourage you, the one who can rescue us has already come. And here's the awesome difference between the Christian and those who lived during the time of the judges. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. All the old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And when you become a new creation, as the prophet Ezekiel predicted, God gives us a new heart and he puts his spirit within us. And when he gives us a new heart and puts his spirit within us, he directs us by his Holy Spirit and enables and empowers us to be able to walk in the spirit, not fulfilling the lusts and the desires of our flesh. He enables us to walk rightly before God. Does that mean we never sin? I wish it did, but it doesn't. But he does enable us to walk in the power of the Spirit and to sow to the Spirit and to of the Spirit reap life and the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. By the Spirit of God, he enables us with these things. Ezekiel 36 verse 26, God said, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I'll take the old heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to keep my judgments to do them. And then you shall dwell in the land. You shall be my people and I will be your God. I will deliver you from all of your uncleanness. That was the promise through the prophet Ezekiel that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus predicted and promised in John 14, verse 26, the helper, the Holy Spirit, will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all things that I have said to you. He, the Spirit of truth, will come and guide you into all truth, John 16, verse 13 says. We need to remember this. We are not the children of Israel in the book of Judges, though we do fail and fall like they oftentimes did, but we have the Spirit of God dwelling in us. If you are in Christ, you're a new creation. And he enables us to walk in the light as he is in the light to be able to shine that light to other people. That's what God wants to do in and through you. Listen, I believe that God wants to use you, his church, if you're a believer today, he wants you to be like a judge in the Old Testament to the culture in which we live. What was a judge? A leader to deliver. Not a, just when we hear judge, we think someone who brings justice and judgment and condemnation. That's not what we're going to see in this passage. This is a leader to deliver. And what is it that we lead to deliver? We deliver the gospel of Jesus Christ to a world that is in desperate need of it. And, and we can be that light shining in a dark place. As we prayerfully examine ourselves, God, is there anything in my life that's keeping me from walking in rightness before you? Is there anything that's keeping me from shining light to a dark world? Can you, can you remove that from my life? Renew my mind that I may know you and walk in your ways. Help me to be salt and light in a distasteful and dark world. This culture desperately needs that. I, we all know that just looking around the place that we live here in Southern California. Would to God that he would use us to be a bright, shining light in a dark place. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. It is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, and it cuts deep into our hearts. It is a discerner between the thoughts and the intents of our hearts, and it reveals the areas of our lives that need to be removed. And Lord, you have the power and the ability to remove those things to cleanse us of all unrighteousness so that we can be a people set apart unto good works. God, would you forgive our iniquities? Would you cleanse us of our sin?
Would you, Lord, pour out your mercy and your grace upon us in abundance and help us to overflow with mercy and grace to others? Because we live in a culture that is in desperate need of your transforming grace and mercy. God, do a work in us first and shine brightly to us, through us to a world that is in desperate need, we pray. For we ask it today in Jesus' name and all those that agreed said, amen.